Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Lieutenant Colonel Christine Grinder Kelly is here, the first female F-35 Lightning II pilot. And we're going to talk about that, her GA flying, all sorts of stories. And so it's going to be a truly wonderful evening. And I am so excited to be back from AirVenture. Uh, probably not as excited as it was to be going there, but I have to say we had so much fun. And I want to show a, uh, a few pictures to all of you here. Let me see if I can uh, open some of that because we had the good fortune. We ran our Snag Some Swag promotion where we brought a ton of giveaways to the show, both big and small and uh, chose all sorts of individuals that we met. If you saw us at the show, you um, there were so many that, that you, you probably are not in, in one of the quick pictures here, but I just want to say a personal thank you to everyone who sought out myself or Jake or Ben and uh, dragged us aside just to chat. You know, when you're on one side of the camera for so uh, many years at this point of running this show every single week, it is a true joy to actually meet folks that are on the other side. And so I just wanna say thank you to everybody that did that. And hopefully you were able to get some stuff from us uh, along the way, just as a, as a thank you to take home from the show. And so one of the things we did, tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Massimo Mighty Sat, the amazing uh, medical quality Mighty Sat uh, pulse oximeter. And we gave away a bunch of them uh, at the show, and so there's some people that did that that were able to to get it that um, uh, that we saw at the show, and uh, did a ton of other things. And also a shout out and thank you to Phil Susi, RSO uh, in the SR71, an amazing person who has been on the show before and will be coming back after many years to the show in September. Very very excited to have Phil come on the show, and a big thank you. Uh, for his invitation where we all joined him as his guest at EAA's The Gathering event uh, to raise money for EAA. It was a wonderful night, and thanks to him and his friends um, all at the table, truly, truly wonderful individuals. We got to spend time with Mike Patey after um, his unbelievable, like miraculous saving of uh, having the engine explode uh, when he was flying in on turbulence and then gliding down from, I believe, 27,000 feet to a dead stick landing. His story is on our YouTube channel within our inter interview with that, and um, it's really remarkable behind it. So happy that he's okay, and we're able to spend time with him as well. Uh, other friends across, we got to spend time with just fantastic individuals, and so many of you do things for general aviation and supporting youth and youth programs uh, at, um, along the way. Uh, and told us about it. So I just wanted to show a, a few pictures there. Uh, David Ewell, who'll be also be coming on the show shortly, it was there with a brand new painting he is working on that you can see in the center of this that's fantastic. Um, and I just felt like show, sharing a little bit of that with everyone. Rob Holland was there, our good friend from New Hampshire, uh, and the folks from iFly, EFB, Michelin, et cetera. So really uh, just a, a wonderful opportunity. 
and and then a few things along the way. There's a video that I would like to direct all of you to also on YouTube about hypoxia. It is a video that we did when we got worked with the FAA for their Prote Chamber on hypoxia. And um, one of the gentlemen there also wanted to let me know that uh, uh, the uh, FAA policymakers have made it such that uh, our video, you really want to watch it because my apparently it may be one of the last videos of the Prote Chamber. They have decided no photography moving forward. Um, but it was a great video and a great experience that we had with them and they enjoyed it as well. Lastly, here's a tip. When you are trying to get out of Oshkosh quickly and uh, you clean your windshield, don't just casually toss the uh, aerosol container of the windshield cleaner into the plane uh, because when I did that, it hit something sharp and chose to explode. So the entire inside of our plane on our way out of Oshkosh got covered in uh, window cleaning foam and got a really good scrub down by us before we got out of there. This is the can losing its mind outside the airplane afterwards. And then to wrap it all up on our way out and in very, very fitting fashion for tonight's guest, we had the opportunity for a personal tour of the F-35. And I can tell you there, it was unbelievable to be able to see this up close, really, really amazing. Uh, and, and thank you so much uh, to the uh, F-35 team for making this possible for all of us. So with that, I would like to introduce tonight's guest, which you all came here for. Lieutenant Colonel Christine Kelly, call sign Grinder, was the first woman to fly the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter in 2015, but there is so much more to her story. Prior to the F-35, she flew the F-15E Strike Eagle in combat, accruing more than 2,800 flight hours and 500 combat hours during her 20 years of service in the United States Air Force. She also led the first combat mission that was planned, brief, launched, and flown entirely by women in 2011. She's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy with two master's degrees and currently works as an F-35 contract instructor pilot at Eglin Air Force Base, teaching simulators and academics to current and future F-35A pilots. All that said, when she's not teaching new pilots how to fly the F-35, she can be frequently found on the local airport ramp with her RV-6 and Piper Cherokee fix. She isn't uh, on the public speaking circuit and isn't promoting a book. She is simply one of the most accomplished and genuine people I have ever met. And I am absolutely thrilled to have her with us tonight. I'm going to bring her on the line right now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Lieutenant Colonel Christine Grinder Kelly. How are you this evening? I'm great, Jeff. Thank you so much for the very kind intro. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's probably a very small fraction of uh, what um, <laughs> of all the accomplishments that you've ever had. Tell me, if I might, if I may, um, tell me a little bit about how you got connected to flying in the beginning, and and what what had you join the Air Force and start on the, your path this way. Well, I was exposed to the Air Force at a very young age. My dad was in the Air Force. He's a C-130 pilot. So I was actually born at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina back in the day when it was kind of Vietnam uh, era. Uh, so tail end of Vietnam. Anyway, he separated from active duty and joined the Air National Guard in California. So he flew um, the firefighting mission for the Air National Guard there. He also got hired by the airlines. So he was a 30-year airline guy and a 20-year Air National Guard guy. So I, I saw that. Now, I didn't have any exposure to flying other than that's just what my dad did. Um, 
I, we lived in Laguna Hills, California when I was little, and the outside downwind for the pattern at El Toro Marine Corps Air Station went right over our house. And so I, I distinctly remember as a very young child, like five, looking up and there's F4s beating up the pattern and they were so loud and powerful. And I just looked up and I'm like, okay, I want to do that. And my mom reminds me that she's, she said, no, sweetheart, you can't do that. Um, you know, flying wasn't really something that we did, you know, it's a, it's a very expensive hobby. So it's not something we did. Airline industry wasn't great back then. And women really didn't have a lot of options flying. So that was like 1980-ish timeframe. So um, she kindly informed me I couldn't do that as a five-year-old. Um, you know, I think it was uh, probably 55. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, so I kind of like fouled that one away. Uh, I was an athlete. I did gymnastics. And then in junior high, I was, you know, uh, softball and then volleyball. I went on to play volleyball in college. So um, really kind of focus on athletics and just kind of keeping options open. So I don't know where I got that, um, but it just occurred to me, like, if I want options in the future, I need to do well in school and I need to have a lot of extracurriculars. So Girl Scouts, all those types of things so that I could pick my choice of schools and, you know, continue whatever path I wanted to do. In fifth grade, Top Gun, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like that definitely influenced me. It kind of reminded me, oh, yeah, that fighter pilot thing, that is really cool. I, I really, really still want to do that. But again, women still couldn't do that. So um, I was also influenced by my grandfather who flew uh, B-24s in World War II. Uh, he just did one combat tour, so he got his 30 combat missions. Um, and then he became a farmer. So he didn't really talk about his time in the service, and it wasn't until kind of high school that he started talking about it at all. I'm like, really? My grandfather was in the Army Air Corps? That's pretty cool. Uh, so that was a wonderful influence. And then that got me leading down the path to learn about the WASPs. And I realized that, wait a minute, women flew all the fighters back then, albeit not combat, but they did all of this. And so uh, by the time I got to high school, I was really fired up. Like, this is crazy that women can't do this yet. This is absolutely what I want to do. I mean, Heck, the, the Soviet night witches, you know, like they were they were aces in, in World War II. So there, there were definitely examples out there. And the fact that that hadn't really come to like fruition in the U.S. yet was mind blowing. Um, so that just kind of drove my desire. And I think it was like my junior year where I was like, all right, what am I doing? I need to be a fighter pilot. What's the best way? And that's what brought me to go into the Air Force Academy, because looking at the odds, you had the best chances of going to pilot training if you went to the Air Force Academy. But influenced by my dad, my grandfather, the WASPs. So that's interesting. You, you, and at that point in time, you still couldn't do combat fly, uh, or, or flying combat at the time. Yeah. So you were still taking a chance by, right. by going in. If, it like if never fighter pilots were in your blood. Yeah, it didn't occur to me. I don't know why. I mean, I think it did. In fact, when I interviewed with my senators, who shall remain nameless, both of them women, um, they actually told me, oh, sweetheart, you need to find something else to do. Um, <laughs> so that was super frustrating, uh, trying to get a, a nomination. That's what, that's what your senators actually said to you? <laughs> my female senators said that to me in high school, <laughs> in like 1992. So that's okay. Um, it just kind of fueled my drive even more. I had other organizations that said similar things and it was, it's like, I've always been kind of of the mindset that anything you can do, I can do better. Um, like I used to get in trouble a lot in elementary school because as a gymnast, since I was very strong and you're much stronger than boys up until, you know, kind of about middle school. And so when boys thought they were better than me because they were boys, I would like to show them that they are not usually physically getting myself in a little bit of trouble. My parents, I gave, I was a handful. Okay. 
I'm yeah. sure there's a story to go along with that one, but no, we'll just leave that one let, let that one lie for now. <laughs> so, when do you remember finding out that you were accepted into the Air Force Academy? Oh yeah, I, I actually looked up the letter last week. So um, it was January, like January 30th or something, 1993. Uh, and so I was, of course, just overjoyed, overwhelmed. I took the SAT five flipping times. I took the ACT two times. And only after all of those was I able to combine my scores for a super score that would get me into the academy. So um, I'm not a great test taker. And, uh, and so it was, it was, it was amazing. I still, I, it's an admin error, but I straight up got in. So uh, I'm going to take it and run. It wasn't until April, so the end of April that year, 1993, that women were even allowed to fly uh, combat. So they lifted the ban on the combat exclusion ban on women. Anyway, it didn't occur to me, but I'm so glad that it did because now I just got to follow in the footsteps of everybody else. So it was like nailed the timing. Uh, the theme of my career is luck and timing for sure. And it began there. Um, I, I don't know. I, I yeah, I, I'm very, very blessed. I was very blessed to be able to follow in the footsteps. I didn't really have to be a trailblazer or fight the through that battle uh, from the beginning. Wow. And they the law. So the law changed when in, in 93, I believe. Yeah, and April 93. So timing was actually, like you said, pretty good for Perfect. you. Yeah. You were already in the system on faith that that somehow it was just going to work out anyway. Yes. And absolutely. Poof. Yes. And then it did. <laughs> and then a month later, I was at the Air Force Academy getting yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. We, um, in some of the previous uh, discussions with folks that have been to the Academy, they talk about how the letter itself has changed to now kind of put an admonishment in there to say, you know, if you are here for any reason other than yourself, don't go. Like Very valid point. Yes. I've had, I've had kids talk to me. They're interested in going to the academy. I'm like, why do you want to go? If their answer is because my mom went or my dad went, I'm like, that's not the right reason to go. You have to have an internal drive. You have to have, for me, it was, you know, I really wanted to be a fighter pilot. So that was my drive, which kind of underlines, you know, was I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to serve something greater than myself. And you watch Top Gun, whether it's the first or the second, like, it's awesome. You know, like the power, uh, the camaraderie, you know, it's a lot of hard work and it sucks at times, but it is so worth it. It is so rewarding. And so I wanted to do something that wasn't just sitting behind a desk. I get out and do something uh, that was challenging, uh, both physically, mentally, um, and a lot of fun. Wow. So um, you tell me about uh, flying in terms of uh, uh, as, as you got towards the end of the, your time at the academy and getting ready to graduate. What what was it like and what, how did you find your way into the Strike Eagle? Was that direct or was that through other aircraft? No. Yes, it was. Um, I will say, you know, I look back on it, like I had no experience flying, zero, none. You know, my dad flew, but that was just what he did. Um, you know, and the airlines weren't great back then. We never even took trips. So it was kind of, you know, I was familiar with it, but it's not something I was experienced with. They bought me a little 30-minute um, exposure flight after I got into the academy. Like, are you really sure? You know? <laughs> They you never said yes. Get airsick they, now. They, they didn't discourage me, but they didn't encourage me either. I think they were afraid that whatever they said, I would do the opposite of, um, or they just didn't know. So they were kind of like neutral about the whole thing. Here, go fly and see if you like it. And I loved it. And at the academy, you know, the end of your freshman year, I was flying gliders. That was like amazing. And then uh, I got to jump out of airplanes, you know, a couple years later. And then it was 
um, my the end of my junior year before my senior year, I got to fly the T3, and I know Blaze has been on here talking about the T3 Slingsby Firefly, um, and that was a fun airplane, and, and you flew military patterns. So unlike flying the T41, the Cessnas that we had back in the day, you're flying a pretty awesome little low-wing airplane in a military pattern. So uh, I loved it. I mean, I had one instructor pilot who was a fighter pilot, and it was like, okay, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. I just loved it. I loved every part about it. It was just a quick little, um, I think we got like 23 hours, 24 hours, something like that, and then you got a grade. And so um, my grade was well, was good enough, just the minimum actually, uh, to be to be able to go to Shepard Air Force Base, which is Euronado Joint Jet Pilot Training. People have talked to you about that before, and that was, at that time, everyone who went there got fighters. So I could go to straight to pilot training, like right after graduation, or I could wait six months to go to Shepard. I was like, oh, I'm taking the sure thing. <laughs> so I waited six months to go to Shepard so that I had a guaranteed fighter, um, assuming I did well enough. And uh, so yes, I got to go straight to pilot training after my six month break. Um, and you know, we flew T-37s back then, and then the T-38. Um, so I, I, the class that I started with, um, of course, you, you, in the Air Force, we start with a class, we finish with a class, and you stay together the entire time. And I, of course, really wanted to graduate with my class. I mean, everybody does. Uh, unfortunately, I washed back. Um, so I washed back because I was playing volleyball, and I hurt my ankle really badly, and I was in a cast for six weeks. But there was a moment because I was ahead enough where my flight commander said, okay, Christine, you know, you can double up to catch up and graduate with your class or you can wash back and, you know, go back to class. And no one wants to do that. This is like the last six weeks to two months of pilot training and you don't want to be the new guy at the very end. Um, and so it really came down to, you know, a lot of praying, uh, a little bit of, hey, does anybody know what's in this drop? Are they getting, because we hadn't had our drop night yet. To determine what airplane you're going to. Uh, thankfully, uh, I was called to drop uh, to wash back a class, uh, and there were no strike eagles in the class I would have graduated with. So, oh, really? Uh, you know, luck and timing thing again, right? I mean, had I not hurt my ankle, I wouldn't have washed back a class, uh, and I wouldn't have flown the strike eagle because there were no strike eagles in that drop. Is so that got, the is that the stage where you're doing the dream sheet everyone's talked about? Yeah. Yeah, and then I know somebody else talked about like the story. I think it was, I think it was actually uh, Noodle. He was talking about, you know, where, you know, there's like a clown. You know, they kind of do it up really fun. It's at the O Club, and and they make a big production of it, you know. And I think we did end up like shooting, you know, the little silhouettes of airplanes, and whichever one you hit was the airplane that you got. And so on my drop night with my new class that I washed back to at the very end, I found out that I got one of the two Strike Eagles. So I was just you know, very blessed, overjoyed, luck and timing worked out. And is that determined based on, I mean, it's not actually the game that you guys play, isn't it determined no. based, based on your performance? Like, <laughs> That's terrible. The second uh, time someone was like, and then I shot this thing and it was the plane I got. And I'm like, what? Yeah. So, you know, it's that's a little bit stuff behind the curtain, but it, in theory, they go by your order of merit in the class. So how your class ranking, how well you did, and they try to match the top people to their top choices. So I don't really know. That was all behind the curtain stuff. Um, I'm sure that, you know, IPs get to have their opinion in there. So um, I don't think it's just pure order of merit. Maybe it is. Every pilot training base does it differently, and it probably fluctuates over the years. So. Yeah. Um, I did graduate. I was number two in my class. So I was a distinguished graduate, which was kind of cool. 
um, despite the washing back, despite, you know, I actually didn't, I actually busted a check ride once. Um, so there's some things, there's low level formation, that was definitely a setback. Um, but again, I, you know, I, I've always said, you just put yourself out there, you try your hardest, you keep your options open and luck and timing. So it really worked out for me. Wow. And now the F-15 Strike Eagle E was that, I think that that was the premier fighter at it was, the time. It was fighter in the Air Force inventory at the time. And that's yeah, what that's I wanted. I loved it. I loved that airplane. You know, it was kind of like the Top Gun F-14 mentality because it was two seat, right? You had two seats, two engines, um, two tails, you know, both dual roles, so air to air and air to surface. I just loved everything about the Strike Eagle. In fact, it was the newest airplane that we had at the time. Yeah. Do you recall, of course, your, your first flight in the Strike Eagle? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about that. It was, um, so it was like January of 2000. And, uh, you know, I think our class started in the November timeframe and um, you get paired up, you know, with a Wizzo. And, and so it's kind of funny. I was, you know, of course, the only girl in my class, there hadn't been many female pilots that had gone through yet. I think I was like number five behind Fifi Malakowski, actually. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and my Wizzo was this big dude. I mean, he was like, he was a big guy. He was the biggest dude in the class. And I was like the smallest person in the class. So it was pretty funny. Um, but anyway, you don't get to fly with your crew Wizzo on the first flight, obviously. You've got an instructor pilot in the back. Um, but yeah, it was like uh, Sud Bud Sutter. That's his name. He knows. Uh, and, you know, when, when I took off, it, we got to do an unrestricted climb. And so you know, get my nose established up like about 70 degrees nose high-ish, and then you look behind you. You know, I'm, lo I'm looking straight up because I'm like, I don't want to bust my altitude. I don't want to get slow. You know, all the things that you're running through with your, um, you know, checklist and, and such. And he's like, look behind you, check six. And I look behind me, and that, just to see the airfield directly behind you between the tails, that is an amazing sight to see. It was so awesome. Uh, and so then I start like this kind of like, lazy kind of roll out from you know recovery from my nose high to like level off or keep continue our climb and he's like come on roll like a fighter pot you know roll inverted pull right okay now we're on our way it was awesome wow that is yeah. so so cool and of course they you know the other thing that that i've always heard is it's the wizzos that you're in the respect from they're the ones that judge like there is no hiding anything in a two-seat airplane, not at all. So, yeah, absolutely. We definitely have a Wizzo union, um, and, yeah, 100%. Like, the, the talk, they talk, you know, and if, if you're somebody who's a ratchety pilot, you're not smooth or you're just not good, everybody knows. <laughs> so when did you uh, – well, one thing I want to say, it's really kind of interesting, the – almost the, the balance between the F-4s that you saw fly over your house, I mean, and the F-15, because there's, there were so many aircraft in between those two in, in evolution that were much smaller, much different in, that, that came out. But those are both incredibly powerful behemoth aircraft, twin engine. And so literally you wound up with a more advanced version of what you were kind of Pretty drooling much. over in the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. Luck and timing. It was awesome. That that's was incredible. I loved it. Tell me about your your first deployment uh, in the F-15. So I got lucky enough um, to my first assignment was at RAF Lake and Heath in the UK. So in fact, Fifi was in the squadron. <laughs> Fifi Malakowski was in the the Bowlers, the 492nd Fighter Squadron, and uh, I kind of showed up, and then she left two months later. So um, 
wonderful squadron, amazing leadership at the time, um, and very busy. We were very, very busy. So uh, my first deployment was, I, I was like, I had been to the squadron for a year, and that squadron was always deployed. And we were nuclear certified back then, so we had the pain of going through all the NATO nuclear inspections, the US nuclear inspections, just keeping that nuclear role was a, was challenging because it's painful as it should be, right? Because <laughs> it's nukes. Um, so you got into the, all that stuff. And so we were always busy, always exercising. We called it Lake and Pain, Lake and Standard. I think it's still kind of the same, but um, at lots of deployments. So we got to, you know, come back to the US, to the States, do a lot of shooting missiles, dropping bombs. But in 2001, I got to deploy to Kuwait. It was Operation Southern Watch. So that was um, you know, after Desert Storm, and now we're we got the snowfly zone in the middle of Iraq, and there's the northern no-fly zone and the southern no-fly zone. So Operation Southern Watch was patrolling the southern no-fly zone, and so uh, I was fortunate to be the youngest pilot that they took. And uh, gosh, I remember then, like this is so old school, but we didn't even have GPS in our airplanes yet. Um, we started getting them, so there were a couple airplanes that did. Uh, we also didn't have link 16 like our data link that we have like that's crazy I tell the young guys that I'm like, okay, dude that with no link. It's just mind-blowing um, We didn't have the link. We didn't have GPS uh, There's a couple other things. So it was it was old-school NVGs NVGs were brand new in fact We were the first people to deploy in combat with NVGs and NVG for everybody night vision goggles Yeah yeah, it was, and even then the whole squadron wasn't even qualified. So we had like a certain little small subset of the team of people who got qualified in MBGs. So yeah, I got to deploy to Kuwait and uh, it was only a three month deployment, which is perfect timing. Three months is a great length for deployment. Unfortunately, they're much longer these days. But uh, And I, I was very fortunate that during the three months there, I was one of the very few who got to drop a bomb. Wow. My, my understanding is that, that back in 91, uh, 2001, uh, Southern Watch in that area was one of the most uh, kind of dangerous times because the uh, Iraqi forces and anti-aircraft forces were very much in place, very organized, and, and there was some active shooting that was happening. Can you, is that shooting at us. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't super threatening, but I mean, the, when the bomb I got to drop was on a KS-19, so it's a huge... Uh, 110 millimeter AAA piece, so um, anti-aircraft artillery, uh, and so we got to see this on the uh, MQ-1 footage later. So pretty cool. What happened was there was a guy like hanging out in a building. This was at Talil Air Base. Okay, so Talil Air Base, Iraqis, back in 2001, and a guy runs out from the building over to the KS-19. He pulls the handle or whatever it is to fire around in the air, unguided, just fires it up in the air, and then runs back into the building. And so we continued to do this. And so we see this AAA and we're like, okay, we see this. Well, the kill chain, um, because it's just Operation Southern Watch, we couldn't just go like, all right, I'm gonna drop a bomb on you. We weren't, it wasn't really self-defense because they weren't really aiming at us. I mean, they it's aiming in our general direction, but we just avoided it, it's fine. Um, so then we had to pass up what we were seeing all the way up to you know the command and control entity for us to get approval to be able to drop. So that took a hot minute, um, all the while, we're just holding, just watching, you know, we didn't see the guy because back then our sensors weren't so great. We had a lantern pod uh, and that was our, our targeting pod that you could see the ground with. And um, it was like pixels. You didn't, I mean, you saw a couple pixels for the AAA piece. So it wasn't very good, not high fidelity like what you have today. Anyway, we finally got approval um, to go do this. And so 
the attack was, you know, flight lead was going to try to drop first, and then we were going to come in behind, I don't remember, two-mile trail, and drop behind him. Maybe it was more. Don't remember exactly. And so I'm like about to drop a bomb at combat, and I am a first lieutenant, you know, and oh gosh, how old was I at the time? Not very old, in my 20s, early 20s. And this is like pretty intense, but you just kind of revert to all of your training, right? So I've dropped bombs here and there, not a whole lot of heavyweights and never lives. So this was pretty badass. And uh, so as we're on our target run, if you will, um, I'm waiting for my Wizzo, and you have this release solution that comes down. So it's, it's the release solution, and when it hits your flight path marker, if you're not pressing the pickle button, the bomb's not coming off. Like, it's, you're already inside the ballistic release point, it won't come off, because we're dropping a GBU-12 laser-guided bomb. Old school laser-guided bomb, we still drop them today. Well, he doesn't see it. So I see this cue coming down from our release, and he can't break out this KS-19, because again, it's a couple pixels. So I'm waiting for my Wizzo to say, captured, i.e. he has it in the targeting pod, and cleared to release, letting me know that he's gonna be able to fire the laser and guide it on the target, okay? So that's the crew coordination involved with a two-seat airplane. Um, so anyways, I, I, I'm not touching the pickle button, obviously, but my master arm is hot with a live weapon, very intense. The solution cue starts coming down and I just start bunting. So now I'm like kind of diving, but you, you couldn't get, you couldn't go below a certain altitude because there were uh, ROE for this area. You know, they didn't want you flying lower where you would actually get shot by some of the AAA and things they were shooting up at us. Anyway, right before I'm about to just abort the pass, he calls, Cadre crew release, press that pickle button. We check, he lays it in. It was awesome. Come back home with one bomb missing. It was just like a glorious day. It was awesome. It, it, we only, a few people dropped that whole three months. So I was very, very fortunate to get to drop. Um, and, you know, we saw the MQ1 footage after the fact. And we got it. Wow, that's it cool. That's amazing. And tell me a little bit more about some of your, some of the stories, other things that have to do with your deployment there in the Strike Eagle before we get to the Lightning um, that uh, that are really memorable from your time. Because again, people absolutely rave about that aircraft. Yeah, I, I love it. It was wonderful. I, I deployed to Southern Watch and then Northern Watch next, which was out of Turkey. And that was pretty cold at the time. You know, they, they would shoot at us um back then also saddam hussein had like these little rockets and missiles he would fire on the air unguided just kind of shooting things up in the air just to i don't know harass the aircraft that were patrolling we got to do really cool things um we had an alert that it was a, a five minute alert actually it was a 10 minute alert but we pr prided ourselves on being airborne within five minutes um anyway uh really interesting story once because you're sitting there like in your gear Five-minute alert, we're not in the airplane. The airplanes are hot-cocked, they're ready to go. Um, but you're sitting in like the alert shack, looking at the bat phone, waiting for it to ring. So you got your flight gear on, you're sitting in a G-suit all day long and your harness all day long. You felt pretty cool. <laughs> anyway, when the bat phone rings, maintainers go running out to the car to get it started, to the truck. You know, we answer and they tell you, scramble, scramble, scramble. So then we go racing to jump onto the back of the truck bed as it's starting to, you know, start going down the end of the ramp to get to the airplanes. I mean, it's not even stopped by the airplanes and you're jumping out. I mean, everyone was like their best athlete at this point, right? Because, I mean, adrenaline is high. And so we would do this almost every day because there was this Baghdad to Basra shuttle. So Saddam, um, the, the Iraqis would fly an airliner from Baghdad to Basra and back forth. And so we were always afraid that they were going to tuck in some fighters or bombers or something, some military airplanes under the wings of this airliner. 
And since we were strike eagles, we had a targeting pod and we could look and see in our targeting pod um, and count noses. Hey, did he have, was he sneaking anybody in? Well, this one particular day, I was launching with my squadron commander and uh, you know, I got ready first. So I was, you know, you hop up the ladder and you're pulling the JFS or jet fuel starter, you're pulling the JFS handle before you're even strapped in. So it's, it was cool. You're like, it's crazy. And your crew chief's pulling chocks before you're even, you know, the INS alignment takes 30 seconds, you know. Um, well, this particular airplane I flew had, had a GPS, but it had the wrong INS for the GPS that we had. Bottom line, it shorted itself out. So I'm ready first. I don't know this yet. Everything looks good. And my squadron commander gives me the lead. So I'm like, okay, first lieutenant, let's do this. So we go out to the runway, we blast. And as soon as we get airborne, my moving map, which was pretty archaic back then, uh, considering what we have now, it was showing me over Africa. <laughs> That's not good, not good at all. So I'm now trying to figure out what's going on as we're blasting up north to like go right to the border and, and check out if there's anybody in this. Now, mind you, this is hour 12 of our duty day. So we've been sitting there for 12 hours. We had to get a duty day extension. It's now going to be nighttime by the time we land, all these things. Well, long story short, um, there no threat uh, from the Iraqis as expected. Uh, but now I have lost my um, attitude system in the airplane. So looking out my HUD, it's showing me like 10 degrees nose high and like 20 degrees of bank. It didn't matter what we did. My INS is still showing us over like Africa. So nothing's making sense. My attitude references are all jacked up. People actually like, this happened to Noodle. You know, this is, we, anyway, we weren't sure what was going on because even my electronic ADI wasn't accurate either. So things weren't agreeing with each other. Um, so now I'm just looking outside. It's VFR kind of sort of is getting dark. So I ended up coming home on the wing of my squadron commander. On the way, I lose my CAS which is a control augmentation system in the Strike Eagle. It's like um, power steering for an airplane. So pitch roll and yaw cast. And so now you're like flying a really heavy airplane and I'm flying formation off of my squadron commander. And then as we're coming back home, um, the runway had been closed. So we were taking off and landing on the taxiway. Well, as you might expect, there's no approaches to taxiways. Uh, and we in the military are pretty strict about, you know, not really doing at night. We need to have some sort of glide path guidance, uh, whether it's pappies or an ILS or something. Oh, well, there's no ILS. There's no pappies. There were actually, you know, threshold lights because it's a taxiway. So in the meantime, as we're coming back, there were guys in the squadron who ran out to the approach end and put like Christmas tree lights. They took them from our our little like lounge and they <laughs> strung Christmas tree lights across the threshold. So we at least see the thresholds because we were holding for a long time. Um, and then we did uh, an approach on all I all I looked at was my flight lead. I just flew formation until I touched down and he went around. Um, so it was really cool, really intense, like, wow, that just happened. But that was my first combat deployment. I've deployed with the Strike Eagle uh, for Northern Watch, for Enduring Freedom, uh, just for a little bit. And then also uh, for uh, Enduring Freedom in 2011, years and years later. Um, to Afghanistan. Wow. And that was a that six is... month and that one was a fantastic deployment. Wow. So how did that transition then to the F-35? So it, it I mean, it's a similar missions like we're air to air and air to surface, right? So after my um, last combat deployment in the Strike Eagle, 
I had the the opportunity the I was blessed again to be a director of operations of a Singaporean Strike Eagle squadron and then I got to be a commander of a squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base so I got to lead it was an operation support squadron so we didn't have airplanes but we ran the airfield intelligence aircrew flight equipment um, air traffic control we ran a lot of other associated things with the base um, so it was awesome and I got to fly so I led a squadron of almost 300 people um, we even picked up the ATCALS guys, which was like the ILSs and the radio antennas and all that, you know, it was awesome. It was great. Um, but following the end of my squadron command, um, you know, in the, in the military, you don't get just get to keep flying, unfortunately. Uh, so it's now time to go do a staff job somewhere. And what ended up happening was I was either going to, you know, I was supposed to go to school. Timing didn't work out. So I was going to be a deputy group commander. So I could stay at Seymour Johnson in the Strike Eagle and do that. Got a call. They were needing somebody at Eglin to be the deputy group commander. Again, like the luckiest girl right here. You know, it was a luck and timing thing. They needed somebody for this job. I was perfect for the job. So at the 18-year mark of my career, I got the transition from the Strike Eagle to the F-35. So that's how it worked out. It was amazing. <laughs> really, wow. really lucky. Very fortunate. <laughs> the, I, I, I assume you remember getting the call, though, for the the most advanced aircraft on the planet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who was uh, the wing commander at the time called and said, hey, you know, like, I, I see you're about to be the deputy group commander at Seymour. I really need one at Eglin. How do you feel about flying the F-35? And it was like, is this a joke? Am I being punked? What's going on here? Um, it did come with a gotcha, though, which is kind of funny. And so people who know me always, like, give me a hard time. So back then, um, our ejection seat and our helmets, we had some issues. And so I had to gain weight to be able to fly that airplane. So you had to I gained weight I got to, to fly the F-35. So the, the, the gotcha was, yes, you can come to the F-35, but you have to weigh this certain amount when you get here. So. I like the way you keep that as a this certain amount. Like, like yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, and then a year later, I got grounded because... Actually, it wasn't a year later. It was about six months later because then they found some real issues with the ejection seat, and then I had to gain a little bit more weight. Even more, you said? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they had to weigh me, you know, and so now you're getting weighed in by your boss who's a colonel, and you're, you know, it's your nude weight. So I'm wearing, you know, a sports bra and stuff. But, like, they needed to make sure they needed their due diligence because there was a lot of attention on the fact that, you know, I was the only female flying the airplane, and I look, I don't know, apparently people can't guess my weight accurately. I don't know. So we needed to make sure that we were absolutely doing our due diligence to prove that I indeed weighed what was required at the time. That has wow. all been sorted out. Thankfully, our ejection seat is now one of the safest ones out there. It is it is great. And, and I'm glad that, you know, it sucked not flying for a few weeks while I gained mm -hmm. weight. But donuts and bacon and whole milk for breakfast doesn't suck either. So... <laughs> That sounds like a vacation. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's all good, except then when you're in your, like, 40s, it's just really difficult to lose it. So <laughs> when it wasn't a factor anymore, I'm like, remember that weight I gained? How about a gym membership, Lockheed? Come on. That's okay. <laughs> so um, what was it? I mean, a lot of changes happening, right? You moved to an incredibly advanced aircraft that you have to learn a lot about. But you also moved from this kind of team environment of having a Wizzo in the back to to flying solo. Tell me a little bit about both of those things. Um, so it was, you know, I've never flown by myself. I did get one solo flight in a Strike Eagle once, but that's kind of weird. You know, it was, it was fairing a jet back. Um, you just don't do it. 
so coming up 35, you know, you get a bunch of simulators. So you're practicing all the things you need to do. Uh, so you just kind of get used to this whole thing. And, it, and it's, it was an adjustment. And it really struck me on my first flight. People make fun of me, like all the single seat guys make fun of me for this quote, and I don't care. Because um, I didn't know any different. I'd only flown with somebody, you know, in my back seat. So here I am on my very first flight in an F-35. You know, I plug it into afterburner, 40,000 pounds of thrust, and now I'm going down the runway. Like, oh, that's, this is just me. You know, if I screw up, there's nobody to help me through checklists. You know, once I got airborne, gears up, you know, contact departure, I'm like, oh, that means I have to change the radio. Okay. <laughs> because in a strike eagle, your backseater changes your radio. And even though I had 14 simulators, changed my own radios the whole time, it's like the first time I, they gave me a radio change. Oh, that's right. That's me. Okay. Let me <laughs> I mean, it was fine. It's an, the plane is designed and, and to be single seat. Um, you know, so it just, it took some relearning, some habit patterns. Uh, it was definitely Wizzo appreciation, my first emergency in the F-35, because, you know, it's just like something happens, a bunch of ICAWs and warnings are going off, and you're like, you know, you try to get your checklist and it explodes, and it, you know, and it, it's just like a cockpit explosion. I'm being dramatic, obviously, and you're like, where is my Wizzo to read me this checklist, you know? Um, anyway, but it, it's fine, you know, it, it's, it's silly thinking about it now, but it was definitely an adjustment. <laughs> Did you find yourself talking to yourself out loud? Oh, so I kept the hot mic. Like, so we have a Vox in there. So it determines what, you know, whether you hear yourself breathe or not. And so that was kind of my happy place for the first year. Like I've always listened to either myself or my backseater breathe. Always. So I had my Vox on so I could hear myself breathe. I, you know, some people, a lot of, people, a lot of single seat guys talk to themselves and have their whole lives. So um, I didn't do a whole lot of talking to myself because I'm usually talking to another person, um, you know, for my background, but um, I did like to hear myself breathe until about the first year. And I'm like, I don't ever want to hear myself breathe anymore. Even when I fly my little airplanes now, I don't ever listen to myself breathe. I don't want to hear myself talk unless I'm talking the radio. Even then I don't really want to hear it, but you know, yeah, it's kind of funny. Wow. Um, so tell me, I mean, first of all, what was the emergency that you had? Um, it, so it was, uh, it was a bleed leak IPP. So uh, there's a system in the airplane, um, integrated power process. It, it does a lot of stuff. That's <laughs> funny. I teach this now. Um, so to simplify, uh, what it's doing is giving you cooling and pressurization in the airplane. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it takes ninth stage bleed air from the engine, um, and it runs this little motor. It's also how we start the engine too, is with this IPP. So, um, Anyway, and if we have a generator, like a flame out, that's actually going to bring up it and work as a backup generator. So it's kind of cool. It's a very, it's a really awesome design, actually. Uh, so my IPP uh, shut down. So I get a bleed leak IPP, which means it's detecting hot bleed air in my IPP bay. And so when that happens, it shuts the IPP down. So that ninth stage bleed air that's coming into the IPP bay, everything's closed. Um, so bleed leaks, you know, you think that's pretty scary. Bleed leak IPP. You know, it did what it was supposed to do. The IPP shut down, the bleed leak went away. So um, it wasn't so bad, but you know, when it happens, you, you forget everything you learned. Like, I don't even know what just, you know, oh my gosh, I need to land. It, it was fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I dumped gas, I came back and I landed. And uh, back then we didn't handle them all that well. They wanted me to fly, you know, a precautionary flame out, but the engine's just fine. So there was some, you know, like, no, I'm just gonna fly straight in y'all, I'll be right back. It was very, very hot because you lose all your cooling. So landing at Eglin Air Force Base in August is miserable without cooling in the airplane. I will tell you that much. Wow. 
I can yeah. I can imagine. Uh, you know, one of the things again, we were really fortunate in uh, our little escape out of the end of uh, Air Venture to uh, come across Matt Jackson, call sign Blower, who was the pilot of that F-35, uh, and uh, it was really you know interesting. I mean, he explained. I guess there's a lot of talk about the helmet of the F-35, the amazing technology of the of the F-35 helmet and how you can look down through the aircraft. I didn't realize that was really mainly for nighttime. Oh yeah, yeah. It's People like to gee whiz that, oh, you can see through the air. Yeah, you can. It's super disorienting, let me tell you. When you look down and you see the ground, you're like, okay, which way is up, where am I? Uh, the <laughs> DAS, so it's part of the distributed aperture system. You know, We have a bunch of cameras all around the airplane. Uh, the neat part about our DAS isn't just putting that image in your helmet. It's the missile warning and other things that it provides you and it builds into your sensor fusion. So it just increases the SA of the pilot immensely. But the helmet is very cool. Like it is the most comfortable helmet I've ever flown with. It's just very well balanced. You know, they they laser map your head, you know, so it's built perfectly to you. It can never be used for anybody else. Wow. Ever. Yeah, so it's, it's really, it's the most comfortable helmet. It's again, the, distributed evenly with the weight. But I mean, you think about, we, we saved money and weight and whatever by getting rid of the HUD. So yeah, a lot of people like to talk about how expensive the helmet is, and it is expensive, but we no longer have to pay for a HUD. We no longer have to strap on MVGs because it's built into the helmet. Um, so it's, it's, it's a neat feature. There's, of course, you know, always trade-offs with designs, but yeah, I loved it. What's the, what was the purpose of being able to have that, that ability of looking essentially through the aircraft as, so as a I pilot to help you? Yeah, at night, you know, um, if you're at night and you're looking for things on the ground, um, it's it was the system was not designed to allow the pilot to look through the airplane. Like that wasn't the the purpose of it. You know, you don't mm -hmm. really need that. It's designed to look for missile <laughs> launches and other things around you. So it's detecting things around the airplane, which is going into sensor fusion and is increasing the SA of the pilot. Um, so putting it in your HMD, your helmet is kind of uh, a nifty feature. If I was, uh, you know, if I wanted to like fly directly over a point, like directly over a point, I could put that in my helmet and look straight down and make sure I was directly over it. That's the only time I've ever used it, not at night. Good for flybys, good for air shows. Yeah. yeah. If I wanted to do that, you know, it just takes a lot of extra work, but you can do it. Yeah. One of the other things that I was really, really struck by up close with the 35 is how incredible the transitions for all of the flight surfaces are mechanically. They, you, you can barely see where leading edge slap hinge point is or, or, or any of the other control surfaces. They're so perfectly fared in when they move. It's, it's like permanent gap seals, but on a mega level. It's, yeah. it's a really amazing. You have to bake that into the airplane for the low observable piece to it. So, you know, from the diverless inlets, you know, that hides the engine behind everything to all of those angles and the seams where everything meshes. I mean, how many antennas did you see hanging out of that airplane? Mm -hmm. Like zero, yeah. right? There's zero. none. Yeah. They're all built into things. They're all, all over the place. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it is truly amazing. Uh, now, one of the other things, my understanding, and, and please explain, is that for quite a long time, you weren't able to even see and unleash what it could really do. 
tell me about the first time you were able to see it really go stealth or really, you yeah. know, work it out a bit. So I started flying the F-35 in 2015. So back then we were still kind of playing with our handcuffs on. So it's a, it's a you know, a stealth airplane. Um, so that means air traffic control can't really see us, right? So um, all depending on wavelength and aspect and all sorts of other things. But uh, we would fly with radar signature enhancers, okay? So we would put these pucks on. Um, you'll see them and people, it's been brought up lots of times. We put pucks on the airplane so that you would stand out. It would increase your radar signature, okay? So we never really got to see what the stealth looked like because we're, we're giving everybody an unfair advantage. It, we're in training, so okay, we're teaching people the basics, but you kind of had to just hit the I believe button. Okay, well, you wouldn't really be able to see, they wouldn't really be able to see you at this range. Okay, but you always were like, just kind of hitting the I believe button. You never got to see it because we had pucks on. Well, eventually uh, we took those off. And, uh, and you know, every program, the F-22 did that early on as well. Um, there are times that you want to have them on and not. Regardless, uh, once we took those off and fought in a large force employment exercise, so it was, you know, we had F-16s, F-15s, um, I'm trying to remember who else was on the red air side, but, you know, all fourth gen fighters that were trying to look for us and they didn't see us. We were truly invisible. And so that was the moment where I, I was absolutely a believer in the stealth piece of the airplane because I didn't have to like, okay guys, I know you may see me here, but you can't really shoot me yet because you're not supposed to see me until here. When you took the cuffs off, it was like, oh, this totally works. It was great. It was a, wow. it was a, a great moment and for all of us because we hadn't really done a lot of flying without them. So tell me, as a as a pilot, tell me a little bit about what the difference was flying the F-15 and then moving to the 35, and what you know viscerally, what it, what is it like for you to fly that aircraft? So the F-35, I love it. Um, it is, uh, you know, people are like, which is your favorite? Well, that's like, which kid is my favorite kid? And I'm not I gonna answer. Notice I like, didn't ask you which one is your favorite. <laughs> no, but a lot of people do, and you're like, well, it's it's. I like them both. I love them both for different reasons. Um, the F-35's capabilities are just amazing. Our MFA, our radar, um, all of the sensors and the airplane, how they're integrated together, and the picture that provides the pilot, that is game-changing. Um, the Strike Eagle is getting there. Uh, the F-15X is, you know, coming around. They're, they're also encompassing some of the same um, technology, not quite to the level, in my opinion, you know, uh, from an F-35 perspective. But, uh, you know, we do air to air stuff, we do air to surface stuff, but being stealth, it changes the way you do it. So learning how to employ, um, given that we're stealth was, that's a big shift and I like it. It's different and it's cool. It's really, really cool, especially when you can see it working. Um, but the my favorite part of flying F-35s um, was our seed. So I'd never done seed before, suppression of enemy air defense. That was typically, um, you know, an EA-18 growler thing, um, EA-6B, uh, F-16CJ thing, where they had harm targeting system. Uh, they'd shoot harms with their HTS pods. Okay. Uh, and it took a lot of all these sensors working together to be able to detect these threats. Man, you get a two ship of F-35s and we see the threat right away. Again, working in a large force exercise. Uh, this was a quote from an F-16 guy back in the day. It's along the lines of this. What takes a four ship of F-16s 10 minutes to do or 15 minutes to do, I can't remember what time he gave, takes a two ship of F-35s, five. So we can find and fix 
threats very, very well, which is awesome. And then since we are networked with everybody else, um, they're able to see what our sensors are providing over our network, which makes us, just enhances our lethality in a tremendous way. Wow, wow. And and from a stick and rudder perspective, just kind of aside from the technology? How does, yeah, it's super easy airplane to fly. What's it's that? fun. It's a super easy airplane to fly. Like It's like a dream. Like It is the easiest thing ever. Landing this airplane is the easiest airplane to land on the planet. Ask anybody, they'll tell you. It is so easy. Uh, now, landing on carriers, that's a whole other story, but it's even easy to land on a carrier. Um, I've only done it in the sim, but like, you know, they, they always keep taking three wires and three wires because it's so easy and so predictable that, you know, it's wearing out the three wires. So I mean, you can read a bunch of articles about it. It's a very <laughs> easy airplane to fly, lots of automation, um, lots of really great automation that decreases the pilot workload so that you can focus more on the battle space, which yeah. is why you take an, a young F-35 pilot and compare it to a young fourth gen pilot. And the young F-35 pilot is gonna be thinking more like a mission commander um, because they've got such increased SA in the battle space and what everybody's doing. And the way that, again, the SA that this airplane gives you uh, just forces that mindset, which is a little bit different from fourth gen. Yeah, totally different spatial awareness and, and understanding of all of that um, and situational awareness. Tell me, is, is that where you spend most of your time in your training? Is it is it on the systems and things like that as opposed to things that we might think of as more traditional flying? Uh, oh, yeah, it's absolutely mission systems. So, you know, we spend, you know, a lot of academics on vehicle systems. We spend a lot of simulators throwing every EP in the book at the pilots when they're upgrading because you need that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then once we're done with the EP phase uh, and like learning all the systems academics, it's now onto the meat and potatoes of flying this airplane, which is the employment, all of the mission systems. I mean, we don't fly fighters, we employ them. Wow, that's that's really impressive. Um, before we run out of time, I wanna make sure that we also get to some of your GA stuff, because as I mentioned, you're a, a true GA on the ramp pilot. And uh, I'm going to bring up a few pictures here just uh, right. to buzz through for everybody to be able to see. These, of course, are the hero shots of you with yeah. the F-35. So, oh, my God, they're they're absolutely, absolutely awesome. This, of course, with the F-15. That's a How does that shot get taken? That was my first flight. Um, and I just gone through the bird bath so you can see the water on the canopy. I don't even know where the bird bath was, and there's a ton of cameras around and photography, you know, like journalists, like, hey, go through the bird bath. Uh, okay, how's that thing work? Where is it? <laughs> it was pretty funny. I, I, it was all fine. I mean, I'm, I'm dramatizing it a little bit, but I went through the bird bath, you know, with everybody taking my picture, and then, yeah, that's me taxing back to the chalks. That's my finny flight. Wow. I actually work with the gentleman on my on my right now as a civilian. <laughs> that's that's so cool. Very cool. And now onto the GA side of things. Well, beginning. The, apparently your family's allowed on the ramp to see the plane. Ah, Finney flight. Yep. Uh, yep. They can, you just can't take pictures uh, real close, but yes. What is Finney flight? Your last flight. So this was my last flight ever in the military. Um, but pretty much when you leave an assignment, you'll have a Finney flight. So Finney being, you know, last. And they'll, I'm soaking wet. My kids squirted me with the fire hose and my mom covered me in champagne. So <laughs> that's what you're missing in this picture. So, so cool. <laughs> and then this is you in the RV. Yes. 
RV6. That's the Hulk. <laughs> the Hulk? We, we named, yeah, my kids named it. It's, it's a green airplane, RV6, and they named it the Hulk. So I've got the it, Incredible Hulk decal on the tail and everything. It's gorgeous. Thank you. A, what a that's, beautiful aircraft. That's another luck and timing thing, too. Just kind of worked out, you know? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I, yeah, it was, you know, a friend of a friend at an air, at an airport, just kind of chilling out, hanging out in the ramp one Sunday afternoon, I think, maybe it was a Saturday, I don't know. Uh, he had a friend who lost his medical, who had, who had built a bunch of RVs. He had this RV that he kind of redid some stuff, got a new paint job and everything, and then he lost his medical. And he wanted to sell it to somebody that, you know, wasn't going to overspeed it or kill themselves. And so mm. uh, it just worked out. It's like, I was the right pilot to buy it and man I bought it from a guy who put a lot of work into it so I love it well it's absolutely gorgeous and it must give you a little bit of uh, being able to go back to your 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 flying days of the big iron just just because you can roll it and do whatever you want yeah I like I assume that spends a little bit of time upside down occasionally yeah I love it <laughs> 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 She doesn't love flying with me, but she does go flying. But 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 she will. And then, yeah. uh, this is this is a Mustang. It is. That's a P fifty one. That is James Bohannon's uh, P fifty one. It is the bucket list item to fly one of those for me. And many many years ago at the Breckenridge Air Show in Texas, uh, he took me up in his P fifty one. And then to commemorate it, he painted the wheel there pink, and it is still pink to this day. So. Um, that was a couple years ago at the Wasp Homecoming. He flew the P-51 in for that and took a picture with it. <laughs> That's how wonderful. And, I, you know, the so many people have come on the show talk about the story of the Wasps and the connection to them. And it's it's so incredible the impact that that has had through, you know, through everything. And on so many uh, women that have become pilots, fighter pilots, accomplished in a million ways. Uh, all going back to that. So anything that can celebrate them seems nothing's enough. I'm very thankful that my kids have gotten to meet them through the years. You know, basically we started going to their homecoming in 2016 and it's been wow. amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I know Erin Miller wrote the book. She's been on the show also about uh, uh, getting her, uh, her grandmother buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And, uh, and that's something wonderful as well. And then of course, into the, the, the Cherokee Six as the family hauler. Family hauler, that's right. And the dog hauler, too. She's back there. <laughs> <laughs> so full circle having everybody uh, on the show. Um, look, I, I, I'm just grateful that you've taken time to join and, and share your story with everyone. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, obviously, you're, we're not able to see one speaker circuit. We're not able to read in, in a book about, about what's going on. But the fact that you've taken time to share your story tonight with us, I am truly grateful for. It's, it's remarkable. There's a, probably a, you know, a thousand times more that, uh, and stories, et cetera, than we've gotten to tonight. But uh, I just want to say thank you for doing that and for sharing everything and for everything you've done to serve our country. Appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you. Absolutely. And so I hope you have a wonderful evening and thanks for coming on the show tonight. You too. All right. Take care. Bye. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. Now, our Fly to Win Challenge 
continues. So be sure to stay tuned. Get the Social Flight mobile app uh, for Apple or Android devices. Get on socialflight.com for tens of thousands of aviation events. We are will be announcing probably at our next show um, who uh, we've selected and who is accepted with the, to do the installation, a winner of our Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. And then we launch now our new uh, fly to win challenge where we're giving away Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. They have j there's just a ton of things out there being given away and all you need to do is get social flight and go and fly. Just check in at an airport, participate in general aviation. We are here to support you and to support GA and that's the whole point. And again, thank you to everyone at AirVenture who helped us out, who flagged us down, who we spent time with there. We are truly, truly grateful. We will be back Tuesday, August 8th with Dan Schwinn, CEO of Avidyne, where we are gonna talk about all the things going on at Avidyne in the avionics industry, lots of cool things. So if you wanna know what's going on from that perspective in the world, be sure to check in. Dan is a remarkable guest. It'll really have a good time. We're then off for two weeks, off flying and back on Tuesday, August 29th with a fascinating individual, Andrew King. He is a barnstormer who flies just about every historic, uh, Ragwing aircraft out there, you name it, he has flown it, and uh, we're going to hear we're going to hear about his love for that and the Rhinebeck Aerodrome. Until next time, again, thank you so much for joining us, and I wish you all blue skies.